Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. I was thinking about uh, Back to the Future this week. When's the last time you saw Back to the Future? Man, I don't know, 20 years ago. Oh, really? So you're not revisiting it? How about Back to the... You've seen Back to the Future 2, right? I've seen them all, but just not since the 90s, probably. Yeah. Um, Our friend Micah Bateman is writing a dissertation right now. He he was telling me um, he has this great theory about Back to the Future. Uh, he, <laughs> it's like, it's kind of complicated. I won't go over the whole thing, but basically the idea is that it's a vehicle for a particular kind of neoliberal indoctrination. Okay. So like, <laughs> yeah, so like, uh, really back to the future too is the one the one with where Biff Tannen is kind of in charge of everything. Uh, he's become rich. With is that his, the one with the hoverboards? Yeah, yeah. And which I think, you know, which is a really, it's really great as sequels go, one of the best. So like Marty goes into the future, right? And in Back to the Future 2, and the nightmare dystopia that he finds there is uh, that like Biff Tannen is in charge and and controlling everything, right? Like there's this authoritarian personality uh, who has like a monopoly ownership of everything. And we and we see that like as very bad and leading to ruin and all of that sort of thing. But yeah, like, I, the, think I remember that. Yeah. But like the natural, and so this is Micah's theory, like the natural timeline, like, so Biff is this like perversion, this unnatural timeline that he got the, the almanac, right. To, uh, uh, do all the sports betting and make all this money. And like the natural timeline that they want to restore though, is one without like an authoritarian capitalist, uh, but but one that is still completely like a world that is completely colonized by corporate brands. Right? So like if you remember the Back to the Future films, especially Back to the Future Two, like it is one of the most like heavily product placed films ever. Right? Okay. Actually, like I was thinking about this, and and I so I went I googled uh, product placement in Back to the Future Two and. The Back to the Future fan wiki actually <laughs> has a list of all the things that were uh, uh, all of the product placements in the film. So like a partial list, Pepsi, Nike, Pizza Hut, Mattel, Black & Decker, The Weather Channel, Texaco, 7-Eleven, AT&T, uh, and others, right? Like So like the, the, the natural timeline that they have to restore is one in which the world is still entirely colonized by capitalist forces it's just it's not an individual authoritarian personality it's just absolutely pervasive brands um (laughs) so like that's that's his argument right like that that it is actually very normal and preferable to have this corporate colonization of everyday life we just can't see any of the people running the companies like the people themselves have to be anonymous Right. And that's why I'm bringing it up because I'm like, uh, you know, when he was telling me this, I was like, that's that's like the very idea of this podcast, right? Like that <laughs> the list that we use for the show to find billionaires is like, it's just a big list of Biff Tannins. <laughs> The 
this is uh, this is episode 16 of Zero Sum Empire. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Welcome. Yeah, welcome back or welcome for the first time. Uh, my name is Joe. And I am Chad. <laughs> and here we are again. So every episode, we spend a little bit of time talking about billionaires in the news. And that's what we are going to do right now. Billionaires in the news. All right. First up today, uh, we have the Sackler family, who I feel like we've probably mentioned at some point before, uh, just in passing. Uh, the Sackler family, of course, famous for owning Purdue Pharma, being major philanthropists, uh, especially in the arts. That's the first thing that you're going to say about them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's not. I don't think there's anything else. I think that they're mainly just well known for being big art philanthropists, right? Was there something okay, else? That I let's, let's move. Let's move on to the next segment. Uh, you no, know, of course they own Purdue Pharma, uh, and were um, really uh, evil uh, uh, pushers of uh, of opiates, uh, specifically OxyContin. Everyone knows who they are cause they're in the news every single day. Yeah. Right so now. I don't need to, I don't need to explain this. Um, but a couple of articles came out this week that were, uh, just very funny in their juxtaposition. So, uh, uh, one was in the New York times. Uh, the headline is New York uncovers $1 billion in Sackler family wire transfers. The second one's from Washington Post uh, later in the week. Uh, uh, and the headline is uh, Purdue Pharma facing bankruptcy and thousands of lawsuits wants to pay certain employees in quotation marks, $34 million in bonuses. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So who might those people be? Yeah. Right. I mean, the whole well, point of Sackler. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, the whole point of the first article was like why it's important that they found this billion dollars is because they, you know, like they're making the argument that they're lowballing victims who are suing them, right? And so, like, oh, we don't have any money. We don't have any money. <laughs> and then, and they're like, also, oh, uh, we need to pay thirty-four million dollars in bonuses. Um, and so, it's it's just insane. And um, uh, there was a great uh, statement by their lawyer uh, who said, "Quote." There is nothing newsworthy about these decade-old transfers, which were perfectly legal and appropriate in every respect. Uh, so, <laughs> very yeah. legal, very cool. Uh, all excellent, excellent work by the Sacklers once again. Is there so that basically the the, the state of things is that they are in bigger trouble than they've ever been. Yeah, right? basically, yeah, they're they're in very big trouble. Uh, they've already lost one lawsuit. There's a whole bunch more uh, that they are undoubtedly going to lose. Uh, and uh, I mean, it, it's very, it's weird. You know, I only really sort of like browse the articles, but it seems like uh, they are negotiating uh, how much to sue them for in the first place based on an assessment of the assets that the family has. So it's like, well, we see you have this much money, and also uh, if if you sell off these businesses and the, the assets are worth this much. And so when we add that all up, that means we'll sue you for this much. Right? Um, so it's, you know, it seems like they're relatively confident uh, that they're going to win. Moving on. Second story. Uh, oil tycoon T. Boone Pickens is dead. Uh, one more billionaire down. Uh, he is he is gone. Uh, and uh, what do you know about T. Boone before 
his death. I've been hearing about T-Bone for a long time. You have? I don't I don't really know much about him. I remember he was on television commercials for some reason when I was young. I don't even remember the context in which he was on television commercials, but... I got interested in like oil and energy markets in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. He was one of the people who was like a vocal personality in that discourse. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, he was a, he was a big energy guy. Uh, made his money in a lot of dirty ways. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't really have anything to say about him other than that he's dead. And he said something very funny uh, when he died or or uh, upon his death. He, he left a list, right? He wrote yeah, he wrote some stupid letter that everybody's like, the best, the headline that I'm taking, in the, the article that I'm taking this from is, he left behind an incredible letter about the best life lessons he learned. Uh, and every line is a must read. And so oh, here's an example of one of those must read lines. Uh, he said he would, uh, quote, give up my wealth and success, my 68,000 acre ranch and private jet for a chance to start his life over to start, I guess, start my life over. Like, yeah, uh, you're dying. <laughs> of, like you can't take that with you, right? Like, of course you'd give it up. Like, I mean, you know, like you're giving you are you are literally already giving it up, right? Like you, you, don't, you know, so it's like it's give it up and die, or give it up and and have a chance to start my life over again. Like, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so I love how they're treating it as a deep insight. Though, yeah, let's talk about this Peter Thiel thing. Oh, yeah. OK. Um, yeah, I don't really have much to say about uh, Peter Thiel. Again, you know, this is an article that I that I latched on to be just because uh, it had a, a one hilarious quote in it. Um, but I think he also says some really dumb stuff. Let's listen to the beginning of that video. What, are, what What's the context here? Yeah. Uh, tech visionary Peter Thiel warns against socialism plans uh, and to endorse Trump in 2020. So he went on, I guess, uh, Fox nation uh i think this is like the not fox news but it's like the uh the streaming service that you can subscribe to mm -hmm. uh and he went on there and did an interview and uh he wanted to warn people that socialism is bad and also tell people that he was going to endorse trump and uh so uh yeah let's listen to a little bit of peter Thiel talking because i'm sure he's going to drop some nuggets of wisdom on us too uh so here we go so this isn't in your syllabus. It's something you said in class. If you've got economic growth, you can solve most problems. This brings us to Donald Trump. We've got economic growth. Now, 3% seems to have cooled as we sit here talking. Okay, okay. You're going to average out this year at something between 1.8, 2.4, something like that. But it's economic growth. May we all relax? Well, Reagan, we got 6% growth in 83, 84, 85. We got something like 6% growth almost three years in a row. So... Um, so it's, yeah, uh, two or 3% is, is definitely better than, than nothing. The, the, um, <laughs> the, uh, the question on, on the, on and that's the, the kind of, that's the kind of wisdom you come to a, a billionaire for, for the next decade. And, um, and I think, you know, I think in some ways, um, the president will get reelected if people believe that this sort of growth is going to be sustainable for, for, for the next decade. That's the future he offers. If, and that's, it, you know, it's, it's. Not quite as exciting as Reagan, but it's still um, you know, 3% for, for Okay. All right. So let's, let's break this down just yeah. a little bit. You know, I mean, it's like we begin baseline economic growth can solve most problems. 
like unquestioned, that's the deal. It's like, that's like a Scientology statement. Yeah. It's like, we are the authorities on solving the world's problems and it's economic growth. Given that next step, yeah. Trump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The initial um, premises are not sound. Uh, it, no. It, no. Well, yeah. But I mean, laughably unsound. Um, and then like Peter Thiel, I mean, he's just like stammering. He's just like, st- he's like, well, 6% Reagan, but 3% Trump, 3% better than 0%. <laughs> yeah, he's not great on TV. Uh, I mean, I, you know, like, so like the, the video only has part of the interview. The, the, the article that accompanies it has uh, more from Teal. And that's, that's what I, I cued in on. Uh, okay. So here, here's a, here's a quote. Uh, Teal says, uh, this is under the heading Silicon Valley clueless about patriotism today. <laughs> uh, and so he says, I would like us to be honest about how terrible politics is. As someone who is generally libertarian, I would like to live in a world that is less conflict, less politics. So, I mean, this, well, okay, go ahead. No, I mean, you know, like, I I don't know where to really begin with that, right? Like, uh, I'm a libertarian. So liberty and I'm a billionaire, <laughs> right? And I would, I would, <laughs> and I would prefer a world that was filled with less conflict. I want to have everything and everyone to just be chill. I mean, it's it's, it's you know it's interesting. I mean, like I like we know that that libertarianism is uh, uh, includes um, uh, envisioning a, a minimal role for the government, but I like that he thinks that. It, that politics itself is limited to, I don't know, to like the democratic process or something, right? Like that he doesn't like this idea that like, if we can shrink the government, then there won't be politics, right? Like there won't be any struggles between people f- over resources, right? Or rights mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, just, a, it's a very narrow and weird view of politics. Right. And, and I like, to well, me, it's an impossible fantasy. There's no such thing as no politics. Right. And, and yeah, I guess I just never really uh, understood. Maybe, maybe he's just sort of teaching me about the libertarian mindset. Like, oh, oh, that's, well, that's what they mean. They think politics is like this membrane that's over a kind of natural and free culture, right? Like uh, they only see politics as this kind of superstructure that's overlaid uh, a, a right. like, you know, like not that it's not that it is constant constitutive of culture in the first place, but like, it's this extra thing that's laid on top and we can get rid of it. Um, I guess the last story we have is, uh, and only because we covered this before, frankly, I, I think it's pretty boring. Uh, Robert Smith, uh, not the exciting Robert Smith from the cure, uh, but the boring Robert Smith, who is a billionaire, uh, who is paying off the debt of students at Morehouse College announced this week that he's also going to pay the debt that their parents incurred while paying for the students' college. Is this the same class? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this one class just hit the fucking double lotto? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it came with, it's not free uh, debt relief. Uh, he is also, it's sort of like uh, when missionaries give you blankets and um, you know, fresh water or whatever, but then they make you read the Bible and 
become Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. He's 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 got a message attached to it, which is uh, the, the headline of the article is billionaire Robert Smith says young people have to appreciate capitalism. Um, they need to develop a better understanding and appreciation for uh, capitalism, um, which is the thing that he said whenever he was philanthropically paying off the debt that they had incurred from purchasing something uh, that was uh, too high price. From being the victims of capitalism. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then and then solving that problem uh, for a very small sliver of people uh, that is in a, a, a effectively meaningless in the, in the larger scheme of things uh, in an expressly non-capitalist way right? <laughs> that, that, yeah. uh, that he, you know, uh, he was literally redistributing wealth, right? Like, uh, um, that's pretty rich. Yeah. Nonsense. Almighty God, in the name of the Christ, you call you with a mighty Hercules with the full power and release of your flame of mighty God power to descend into the planetary body and to completely destroy, confound, confute, roll back, consume, and take dominion and command over the energies that have been portrayed in these video clips which we have seen and through all the individuals responsible for them, the fallen angels directly out of the bottomless pit, the demons of death and hell out of the bottomless pit, sympathy for Satan and the sorrows of Satan, association with the Nephilim and spacecraft, perverted movements of the body and break dancing and other forms of dancing. And we especially call for the judgment in this hour and the, destro- and the destroying of rock music directed specifically against children through the videos that were portrayed. And working specifically through these individuals for whom we call for the judgment of the sacred fire in this hour before the throne of Almighty God, Michael Jackson, Prince, Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> Tina Turner, David Bowie, Dan Halen, Madonna, Huey Lewis and the News, The Cars, Herbie Hancock, Bonnie Tyler, Stevie Nicks, Men at Work, ZZ Top, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, Weird Al Yankovic, Cindy Looper, Pink Floyd, The Pretenders, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Elton John, Neil Young, Sheena Easton, Patti Smith and Scandal, Fashion, Big Country, Morris Day and the Time, John Lennon, Apollonia 6, REO Speedwagon, David Gilmore, The Rolling Stones, Pat Benatar, Hall and Oates, Wham, Rebby Jackson, Adam Ant, Banana Rama, Christine McVie, Queen, Jack Cougar Mellencamp, YouTube, Siren, Fleetwood Mac, The Alan Parsons Project, Rick Springfield, The Thompson Twins, Missing Persons, Duran Duran, Police, Eurythmics, Culture Club, including Boy George, (laughs) Stevie Wonder, Kenny Rogers, Jay Iglesias and Diana Ross, Donna Summer, Dean Martin, Kiss, Scorpions, Def Leppard, and especially for the judgment of all movies, including Beat Street, MTV, Street Beat, Miami Vice, Kid Video, Scooby Dooby Doo, Spinal Tap, <laughs> Michael Cimbello, Flashdance, 2010, and Andy Summers, Kenny Loggins, Phil Collins, Fire Incorporated, Olivia Newton John, and the movie Ghostbusters. The clip you just heard was Elizabeth Clare Prophet's Church Universal and Triumphant, as recorded on Volume 7 of the Sounds of American Doomsday Cults. The Church Universal and Triumphant is a New Age religious group that was formerly incorporated in the 1970s. They started out in Colorado Springs, Colorado, moved to Southern California, and then ended up building a huge compound on 12,000 acres in Montana in the early 1980s. 
Around this time, Elizabeth Clare Prophet began telling her followers that the world was soon going to end in nuclear Armageddon, which she believed would be initiated by the USSR. Prophet named the church's home base the Royal Teton Ranch, and to this day it remains their headquarters. As they continued to grow in the 1980s, they expanded by buying the nearby 9300 North Ranch uh, near Antelope Butte, making them the second largest private landowner in the state. Montana's High Country News states that in the late 1980s, the church clashed with federal authorities over petroleum leaks, weapons stockpiles, and bomb shelters built for a 1990 Holocaust predicted by the church's leader. When Armageddon didn't arrive, the church began to lose followers, and to make matters worse, Prophet's health also began to decline. The church was in debt, and in early 2001, they decided they had to sell their second ranch near Antelope Butte. It was purchased in February by Austin S. Cargill, then a corporate vice president for research and development and board member of Cargill Incorporated, the multinational agricultural conglomerate based in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Austin Cargill retired from the company after buying the ranch at the ripe old age of 50. I like to imagine that as he sat down for his morning coffee a few months later and turned on the TV to see the smoking twin towers and crumbling Pentagon, Elizabeth Clare Prophet's doomsday prophecy must certainly have run through his mind, at least a little. This week on Zero Sum Empire, we're going to discuss Austin Cargill II and the Cargill Corporation. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about what that guy was like, all of the rock stars, all, what the fuck was that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I don't even know if referring to them as a cult is really fair. They're a church and uh, they believe they're, they're very new age. So they're like, they, they, it's not like this sort of Christian millenarian end of the world uh, rapture kind of thing. It's more like, you know, a lot of their iconography is Buddhist and Hindu. They kind of mix all religions together. Um, but nevertheless, they, you know, they thought the world was going to end. Anyway, so um, these guys, crazy, but Cargill bought their land. Yes. Well, Austin Cargill. I mean, uh, and you you can't. You can't say Cargill because the Cargill family is basically its own MMORPG. There, like, there are over. Uh, no one actually knows. There are over one hundred heirs to the Cargill family. The Cargill family owns over ninety percent of the business. Now, like the core Cargill members uh, are much, much smaller. So there are six of them who are currently on the board, and there's about fourteen people or so on the board, but. Uh, like the, the, the number of, uh, Cargill family members is immense there. It's the, it's a private company. It's not a publicly traded company. And so, uh, it is still owned by a fourth generation of heirs. And at this point there is, there are articles online about this an inbred, (laughs) like an inbred Lovecraftian universe of, uh, of aristocrats like uh there's a there's an article uh, uh about like uh minneapolis aristocracy and how they all marry one another and don't interact with anyone else so it's just cousins yeah more just or a less lot of cousins. 
Yeah, inbred weirdos. Uh, so to uh, let me give you some facts. I mean, because you know, one of the weird things is like I I don't get the sense that a lot of people know a lot about Cargill as a company, and I, and I want to give you some statistics that I think uh, will be surprising to most people. To me, they were. Um, Cargill is the largest privately held company in the United States, bigger than Coke Industries in terms of sales. That is surprising. It is surprising. Bigger, more revenue than Coke. Uh, the biggest private company in the United States for the last 28 uh, out of the last 30 years. Uh, there are 14 members of the family on the Forbes billionaire list, more than any other family by far. Uh, they are by far the most private family we've come across so far. And I know I say that a lot. Uh, and, and I wanted to say like this week, uh, you know, I, I, I had like a little a tweet thread that uh, had some circulation on Twitter and uh, a lot of new people uh, were introduced to the show. And I wanted to say hello to all of you. Uh, to all of them and and you uh, and thank you. Uh, Thanks everybody for paying attention for at least a moment. It feels good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for checking in. Uh, and, and the reason I'm bringing that up now is because of the six family members who currently sit on the board of the largest private company in the U.S. and there's always like at least that many on the board who are all billionaires. None of them. Uh, that, this is what the, the thread was about. None of them have uh, Wikipedia entries and, uh, and, and maybe Wikipedia shouldn't be really like an index of anything, but it is kind of surprising and kind of shocking that the, the, the six family member heirs who sit on the board of directors of the largest private company in the United States do not have Wikipedia entries. None of them. Uh, I do want to say, though, uh, that since the tweet thread uh, circulated, uh, about half of them now do have Wikipedia pages, uh, thanks to some Twitter heroes. And re- we really did nothing. At uh, uh, Howerchuck, H-A-W-E-R-C-H-U-K, uh, seems to have done most of the work and, and really like pressed Wikipedia. That's really awesome. I, yeah, that, that's that good. is incredibly yeah. cool. And uh and thank you for doing that. And and uh, um, I don't know. That was that was awesome. Great job. So uh, back to Austin Cargill, uh, the billionaire that I'm talking about today. He actually did have a Wikipedia entry, um, and, but it was it's about average for the billionaires that we cover. Uh, a couple of you know relatively short paragraphs. Uh, let me give you the rundown. His bio: He's the great grandson of the company's founder, William W. Cargill. He has a doctorate in marine biology uh, from Oregon State. Uh, He enjoys hunting ruffled grouse. He is divorced and has two children. Uh, In the early 80s, (laughs) he was listed as an author on three marine biology papers that I found in in the old library databases, uh, mainly having to do with freshwater fish. just before he retired to Montana, he was appointed to the board of a company called Galagen uh, that sold nutraceuticals, which I feel like is a very 90s word that we don't use anymore. What the fuck is it? It's like foods that are also medicine. I, I think it really just I think we I think what we say now is superfood. Uh, but in the 90s, they said nutraceutical. Uh, superfood is objectively a better word term. Yeah. Uh, well, Nutraceutical is not good. No, it sounds um, like you could uh, 
like, you know, like you could die from it or something or get sick. <laughs> anyway, um, they work hard to stay anonymous. And so where, so Austin Cargill f- fits in where in this empire just to. Oh, I, I, yeah, I guess I didn't say that. Um, he was a uh, vice president of research and development for about a decade. Uh, he also sat on the board of directors. Uh, so he was big time way so up he's, there. He's a big Cargill. Big cargo guy. Um, there's like but, probably a dozen of them, but he's one of them. That's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, yeah. I, I think that's probably a good guess. I mean, it's maybe, I think that you would have to, they, <laughs> they are very cagey about who even sits on the board of directors. Uh, if you go to their press releases and look through them, they, uh, they will, issue a press release whenever someone new is elected to the board of directors. Uh, but they will in that press release only name other elected people to the board of directors, not any of the family members in every single one. Hmm. Um, and it's very odd. So it's actually kind of hmm. tough to figure out who is on the board of directors. That was another thing that happened with the sort of Wikipedia tweet thread is that the family members who sit on the board of directors changed uh, through some research, some other people did uh, somehow, which uh, also great job. Uh, you are smarter than we are and good job. Cargill is a private company, right? And it's not subject to a lot of the same uh, disclosure requirements about what it does, what its finances are, who works there even, uh, that a lot of other companies are. And I, and I want to talk about that a little bit. So, you know, and the, and the thing is that it's so big and, and, uh, has committed so many crimes that we're not going to be able to, to, to talk about most of the stuff today. However, as I said earlier, there are 14 members of the family on the billionaires list that we have. Uh, and, and so we're going to have plenty of chances to talk about Cargill. In and, the and we're intentionally, if, if those of you who are followers of the show will know that sometimes we condense families into one show like we did with the Pritzker family. Yeah. And we're intentionally not doing that with the Cargills because it seems like there's a lot more to talk about. So we'll just draw it out over time. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, so... What does Cargill do? Uh, well, uh, a little bit of everything. Uh, I'm going to rely in in what I'm going to uh, cover now. I'm going to rely on two main sources. I'm going to link to these in the show description. Uh, one is a recent report from an activist group called The Mighty Earth. Uh, and uh, another one is a book by the food activist and author Brewster uh, Neen. Uh, K-N-E-E-N, uh, he wrote a book on Cargill and Neen gives us a, a pretty good idea of how their business model works. Okay. What do you got? For instance, he cites a 2001 corporate brochure uh, that Cargill published called Our Company, where they explain who they are in their own words. Quote, Cargill is an international marketer processor and distributor of agricultural, food, financial, and industrial products and services. We provide distinctive customer solutions in supply chain management, food applications, and health and nutrition. We are the flour in your bread, the wheat in your noodles, the salt on your fries. We are the corn in your tortillas, the chocolate in your dessert, the sweetener in your soft drink. We are the oil in your salad dressing and the beef, <laughs> pork, or chicken you eat for dinner. We are the cotton in your clothing, 
the backing on your carpet and the fertilizer in your field. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. You know, we've talked a little a little bit about like how big Cargill is. So what do you what do you need to know about them? Um, uh, the biggest customer of Cargill, McDonald's. The Mighty Earth report that I referred to earlier uh, says that uh, McDonald's restaurants are essentially storefronts for Cargill. Uh, they provide all of the chicken and beef to McDonald's. Uh, they they actually prepare and freeze the burgers and McNuggets, which McDonald's just reheats. <laughs> so like McDonald's doesn't actually make the food uh, from the raw meat that Cargill gets. Like Cargill gives them fully made products uh, and they... Just reheat it. That's what McDonald's does. They reheat Cargill food. Same with Burger King. Uh, Burger King has actually uh, been uh, criticized a little bit more heavily in terms of their relationship to deforestation in the Amazon, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, McDonald's has sort of publicly come out against it, although it doesn't seem like that matters at all. They're still buying Cargill meat, which does the deforestation. Uh, so who buys from Cargill? Um, aside from McDonald's and Burger King, other fast food places, Cisco, uh, you've seen the trucks driving around, S-Y-S-C-O, uh, who supplies uh, food to every college cafeteria in the United States. Uh, they are the lo- world's largest distributor of foods products to restaurants, healthcare facilities, universities, hotels, and inns. They have $55 billion in annual revenue, which is quite a bit. Uh, we're going to get into some sort of like relational, you know, proportional revenue stats in a minute. So Cisco has $55 billion? Is yeah. Yeah. The Cisco is immense. And again, just like McDonald's, they're a front for Cargill. Other retailers of Cargill meat, Albertsons, Aldi, Arla, Asda, uh, Garefor, Danome, Etika, Food for Less, Food Max, Kroger, Myers, Morrison's, Piggly Wiggly, Safeway, Sainsbury's, Sands Club, Sam's Club, Save Mart, Target, Tesco, Vons, and Walmart. So every wow. supermarket chain that there is. Wow. Also, Not every one, but a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, uh, a uh, lot of the most big major ones. Yeah. Uh, They are a globally integrated machine that controls a larger share of the global food supply than any other single entity. But let me offer some perspective on how just how large they are, because it's actually kind of difficult to fathom like the the, the size of cargo. Uh, Take, for instance, the famous agricultural corporation that every, everybody loves to hate, Monsanto. You know Monsanto. Of course, Monsanto, right. yeah. Uh, they, they strangle farmers with genetically modified seeds. Uh, they produce uh, carcinogenic uh, glyphosate pesticide, you know, Roundup. Uh, they pollute, they abuse. In 2013, protesters organized a global march against Monsanto that involved at least hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions uh, it's this terrible, horrible, huge corporation, which it is, but 
Monsanto's revenues before they were purchased in 2018 by Bayer were $14.6 billion. Bayer, the massive agricultural, pharmaceutical, life sciences, multinational conglomerate that bought Monsanto, has revenues of about $40 billion a year. Cargill is three times the size of Bayer and 10 times the size of Monsanto. They take in $120 billion a year in revenue. I just don't understand how they're so good at staying so hidden. Because, you know, like, on, <laughs> okay. like, like, honestly, like, I know a lot of people know Cargill. I, I didn't really, I'd heard their name. I mean, I try to pay attention. We do this show. I read stuff. But, like, I didn't know Cargill, really. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, like, there's a very, the very, very simple explanation for this, Joe. It's because Cargill is not a publicly traded company. Bayer and Monsanto, before they were purchased by Bayer, are publicly traded companies, which means that they have to release more information about who they are, what they're doing, and who runs their companies than other than privately held companies do. It's the same thing that happened with uh, with Richard Sackler and uh, uh, the 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 Purdue Pharma, right? Like that nobody, everybody was like, oh, you know, it's just a bunch of it's just a bunch of managers running the company. The family is a, a bunch of philanthropists and they've they've really divorced themselves from the pharmaceutical, you know, operations. And then it turns out that like Richard Sackler is basically El Chapo running a cartel. They don't have to issue annual reports, quarterly reports, changes in corporate leadership, mergers, acquisitions, any offers to buy other companies. All publicly traded companies have to issue uh, 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 statements on any of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about this a couple of uh, episodes ago. We raised the question of like, hypothetically, which is worse, a, a publicly traded company or a privately traded one? And it's complicated. It is complicated. The privately, right. you know, the privately traded companies have this advantage for perpetrating evil. Yeah, they do. Yeah. The, they can, the, yeah and I guess they can the, do it backstage. What Cargill is really, you know, convincing me of is that the privately, the private company is actually much, much worse, right? If it gets big enough, right? The, 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 the thing that we were arguing about is like, well, publicly traded companies can actually generate capital much more quickly. And so you get into this world of like private equity and like people buying other people and, and, and dismantling businesses and wrecking towns and all of that stuff. Um, uh, uh, but, but private companies can get away with the most heinous shit that you could imagine for forever. Right? A long time. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and how do we pin responsibility, right? Like, uh, how do we know that the Cargill family who owns 90% of Cargill, 10% is owned by like, um, uh, high level employees, but like 90% of the business is owned by the Cargill family. How do we know that they are responsible for all of this shit. It's because they're a private company, like because they don't like a private company doesn't have the ability to raise new money. They're not liquid, right? They can't, they can't just say, Oh, we want to buy, uh, this, uh, the, you know, like this new business or, or do this new venture or whatever. Uh, because they can't just immediately sell a bunch of shares and raise new money to uh, to buy that that thing, right? Like Cargill yeah. as a company reinvests eighty percent of its net income back into the business each year. That allows it to keep expanding 
as fast, if not faster, than publicly traded companies. Well, that makes that that all that makes perfect sense. I mean, I guess what I'm given the limited amount of time that we have to discuss Cargill today, can we bullet point? I mean, you've started to, but like, can we bullet point the most heinous parts of the operation? I, you know, I, I, uh, it's funny that you said that because literally the the next thing in my notes is a a, a list of bullet points. But like, but I wanted, to, I, I I did want to make the point, right? Like that the family is responsible. Because they own 90% of the business and it's a private company. Right. They might offload a lot of the decision making about what to invest in or how to run the business or whatever to company managers. However, they still own it, right? Like they're the ones who are profiting from it. They sit on the board of directors. Uh, they are the ones like the, the you know, the buck stops with them, right? Like, yeah, they can't pass. The they buck. cannot pass the buck anywhere else. They are the ones who are profiting from whatever decisions the company makes. And they ha- also have the power to step in and say, we should not be making these decisions. So what uh, uh, what decisions are they making? What makes them so bad? Why are they a bad company? Why were they called uh, the worst company in the world uh, a, a few months ago? Um, like I said, we can't cover it all today. In fact, we can't even cover most of it. Uh, so I made a bullet pointed list to, uh, to, to just kind of, actually, I didn't make this list. All I did was I, I'm cribbing from, uh, the mighty earth report that has a really nice and detailed timeline of all of the crimes that the Cargill company has create, uh, has committed in the last 10 years. This is just the last 10 years, right? Everything that I'm going to say right now. And this is a, this is a company that's over a century old. Uh, 150 years old. This is just what they've done in the last 10 years. Bullet pointed list, right, reading it, it out loud right now. I, I okay. want to hear it. Uh, 20,000 pounds of contaminated beef recalled. 8,500 pounds of beef recalled for E. coli, intimidating villagers in Indonesia by demolishing homes with bulldozers and paying local police to fire live rounds at them to chase them off their lands, 40 cases of salmonella in eight states. The following year, 181 cases of salmonella in 37 states, charged by the U.S. Labor Department for systematic racial and gender discrimination in plants in Arkansas, Colorado, and Illinois, evading $252 million in taxes in Argentina, charged with willful, repeated serious violations of worker safety laws, using child and slave labor in the production of palm oil in Kuala Lumpur, illegal land grabbing in Colombia, child labor, land grabbing and deforestation in Asia and Africa, spilled 29 million gallons of hog waste into a lagoon in Illinois, price fixing on road salt in Ohio, 78 tons of contaminated beef caused another E. coli outbreak uh, across the U.S., using child and slave labor in cocoa production in Africa, in Cotovar and, and Ghana, uh, uh, one of the top 10 polluters in the U.S. in the food industry for at least 28 hazardous chemicals such as chloroform, asbestos, cyanide, mercury, zinc, lead, and nitrates, one of the top 10 polluters of all companies for nine hazardous chemicals. Every one of these serious violations could be an entire episode. Uh, like. Just unbelievable, like off the charts, right? My mind was going haywire. I to <laughs> Me too. This has been my like yeah. last two weeks, right? Like I, I feel like I, my brain has been completely poisoned by like researching Cargill. Uh, just a nightmare. 
uh, across the board. The question is like, what can you do? Right? Like, like, what do you do, Joe, in this situation where you have this globally integrated food system that you couldn't possibly boycott because it's so fucking large, right? Like it's everything. Okay. Yeah. What do you do? No, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm asking you, like, what do we, <laughs> like, what do we do? Right. Like, well, what I want to do is give them a 10 on the Coke asset liquidation index. Yeah. I mean, they're basically Coke brothers. Yeah. You know, we'll probably give like less than five tens in the history of the podcast, no matter how long it goes. But I mean, Cargill is a 10, right? Cargill is a 10 for me. Yeah. Uh, Cargill was extremely sad and uh, and kind of gut wrenching in a lot of ways. Let's uh, let's talk about Reeboks. Joe, who are you telling us about today? I can't remember his name, but he's the Reebok guy, right? Paul Fireman. Fireman. Uh, yeah. So he acquired Reebok from a British company in the early '80s and transformed it into the Reebok that you and I and all of our listeners know today and well first of all do you know what a Reebok is huh uh no I don't I actually have never thought about that before uh yeah that's weird that you bring that up Reebok is it an onomatopoeic thing like Mm -mm, no no. Hmm. it's spelled the the thing that the brand is named after is spelled differently from the the brand name but it is named after this thing. Is it an animal? Yes. Yes. I got it on the second guess. Well, uh, do you want to try to be more specific? Oh, um, mm, I think it's a mammal. Can we play 20 questions? Yes. It's a mammal? Okay. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, is it an African mammal? Yes. Wow, Jesus. Yeah. Uh... I mean, like, how much more specific can I get? Like, uh, it's an African male. Kind of a lot more specific. It's a specific thing. It is oh, an African Is it a cat? Animal. No. No. Oh. Um, is it... It's a small antelope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was, but you did pretty good. I should have done it alphabetically. I, I would have been like, second aardvark, then antelope. <laughs> I would have been there. Yeah. So, okay, Paul Fireman, Fireman, if you were on a mission to like genetically engineer the most generic billionaire possible, <laughs> you might wind up creating Paul Fireman. Okay. He checks so many of the stereotypical boxes that we typically associate with billionaires on this show. It's kind of just like absurd and uninteresting in a certain way. So he's way into golf and country clubs. A large percentage of the things that you read about him online are related to one country club or another. He has a long (laughs) history of like very public relationships with various country clubs. (laughs) Oh man, Um, that's a life goal. Like, I just want to have public country club drama. Like, they're, yeah, they're all mad at me to, for some reason. 
<laughs> sort of. <laughs> it's kind of like that. So, um, he's also, he's also into horse racing. He had a horse named senior investment uh. a couple of years ago. <laughs> this is awful. Uh, this is almost oh, worse than Cargill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he built one of the most expensive golf courses in the history of golf courses. <laughs> He has a private equity firm <laughs> with holdings, which Wait he's a invested in. I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. And among other things, one of the like flagship investments of this private equity firm uh, is a group called Canarchy, which is a craft beer collective. <laughs> uh, he's built one of the most expensive houses in America on a golf course, but a different golf course from the one I mentioned a moment ago, not the, not the, not Liberty national, the most expensive golf course ever built. Uh, He's donated to like the most generic political campaigns that you can imagine. Mitt Romney, Chris Christie and Cory Booker. I mean, he's just sort of, He's just like, on paper at least, he seems pretty much like a caricature. Yeah. Or some sort of artificial intelligence. Yeah. If I was to like, of, if you were like, write me one paragraph, uh, like just render in a, in a single paragraph <laughs> the most bland and middle of the road version of a billionaire that you, that you could, like, that would be the description. Like it sounds like the guy is checking boxes. Yeah, man. he's checking all of the boxes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a sign just of an extremely powerful mind that he can just pop around from country club to country club and and not get bored uh, with his life. I wonder if the obsession with country clubs is at some level a symptom of his nouveau riche status because he is not an heir to billionaires. He he came up. Um, in the middle class ah. and made his own money on this Reebok deal. Basically mm-hmm. he, you know, bought the rights to the company and then acquired the company. And then he built the company into the massive shoe wear company that it is today. And then in the mid aughts, like around 2005, 2006, he sold it to Adidas and made like $700 million on that deal. Mm. And so I don't know if he just feels like he wants, needs to be belong, you know, there's some, some story about him being denied membership to a country club uh, a couple of decades ago. There's some insinuation that it might've been, there might've been anti-Semitic reasons for the denial of the membership because he's Jewish. I find that hard to believe. Uh, I don't. Um, but even, even so his, his, uh, lifestyle is unforgivable. So, I mean, I don't have, (laughs) I don't have any big ideas today. Um, I'm just going to talk about, you know, three or four of the things that Paul Fireman is most well known for in one way or another. And, uh, take it from there, go from there. Yeah. I thought we might talk about the Reebok pump. Oh, right. did they invent the pump? I think. It, well, they got the technology from like some sort of uh, Nordic ski company. <laughs> there was a ski boot 
that Paul Fireman saw that had some pump yeah. inflation technology built in. And he was like, I've I got think, an idea. Let's- I think in cultural memory, like Nike Air came first and then the Reebok Punk. But I think it was actually the other way around. Like the Reebok Pump came out and then to get that no, market, Nike, I, Nike yeah. Air copied. It's Nike. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think that happened before. Uh, yeah. In southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they know or they don't. Right. But anyway. That's how we say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, been, I'm um, extremely embarrassed now. So, yeah, I mean, he heard about this technology that was being used in ski boots and he thought, hey, let's use it in athletic shoes. And his whole kind of innovation in the marketplace was sort of seeing the trend toward athletic footwear. So in the very beginning, Reeboks, I think, were marketed toward women. It was one of the first main brands that was like going after the female athletic mm. foot brand industry. But so, you know, we're in the late 80s. Do you remember when the the, the Reebok pumps came, came Yeah. Out? Yeah. Did you ever have a pair? I did. I did. But it wasn't until they were cheap and yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i mean like that was that was the thing that was like um yeah like high-tech super expensive sneakers yeah i never had any but i was very jealous of them and then like i immediately progressed from like never having expensive sneakers uh to being uh cynical and uh and uh and never wanting uh expensive sneakers. So like, you know, like that, the transition happened without me ever like having the opportunity to get expensive sneakers. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they came out in 1989 and when they originally came out, they were 170 bucks a pair. Wow. That's extremely expensive for sneakers today. Yeah. And at that time they were way more expensive than even like the fancy high end air Jordans. They were just like another price point. Wow. And when they came out, they did a really targeted ad campaign trying to compete directly with Nike and with Michael Jordan. So huh. uh, among other ads, they, they ran an ad with Dominique Wilkins, who was uh, a, a rival of Jordan's, who was in the ad directly taunting Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, you got to get you got to get these bumps. Did they, like, I mean, you you know more about. Uh, sports than I do, like, did athletes actually, you know, were they, I, I mean, I understand that they probably wore them to advertise them, but like, was there any mechanical advantage to wearing revive pumps for people? My suspicion is it's just complete bullshit. That's what and, I guess. You know, like, there's a, there's an immortal technique song. I'll drop a clip in here. And I think that was my experience owning it. I mean, it didn't really give you any more ankle support. It was just a gimmick, but I, you know, I did want to find a definitive takedown of the Reebok pump <laughs> in my research, and I didn't. I, I, I'm sure it's out there, but it didn't come up easily. I mean, it sort of happened before, like the world of clickbait. Like that's such a perfect clickbait article. In fact, like so it would still be clickbait if somebody did it today. 
if somebody found like 89 pumps and like just- we should develop a sideline from the show is developing <laughs> clickbait articles. Yeah. Because we're like we, we could review old, obsolete, no longer in production products <laughs> that people can't get. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> the most pointless that's, show ever. That's how we that's how we monetize this whole experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the ad campaign maybe culminated in this <clears throat> this one commercial where <laughs> they've got two guys bungee jumping off of a bridge and one is wearing Nike's and the other guy is wearing Reebok pumps. So <laughs> the guy in Nike's the, dies. <laughs> yes. Oh wait, really? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's the commercial. <laughs> and like a, a lot of parents were really upset. Being like, really? <laughs> I mean, it is kind of upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Um, between 1988 and 2007, Reebok gave out the Reebok Human Rights Award. Hmm. Have you ever heard of the Reebok <laughs> Rights right, right Award? Uh, yeah. In fact, I have mine right here. I, I won it in. Um... <clears throat> that must mean that you were an activist under the age of 30 who fought for human rights through nonviolent means during those years. Um, they gave $50,000 to this person. I found one article from like the early, uh, it's like 2001 or 2002, where one of the recipients declined the award, basically being like, I had to really wrestle with this, but Reebok has sweatshops everywhere. (laughs) 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 And we know how bad they are. And so, I mean, you know, this, this industry connects with some of the things that we've talked about previously on the show. Lee and Fung, you know, obviously has been behind uh, some of the factories that makes Reebok, but, um, they stopped giving out the award after Adidas bought it in like 2007. So I'm not sure how interesting Hmm. that is, but I thought I would share it. I don't know anything about Adidas corporate history. Uh, I feel like it's one of the few brands that I have some brand loyalty to. I I, I have a feeling that always rock Adidas, never rock Fila. Yeah. I mean, it's less that and more that, that, uh, like, you know, you get a pair of Sambas and it'll, it'll last you, they'll last you for like three, four years. Uh, the, the stuff they make does not wear out. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, Adidas track pants, they last a lifetime. They never go out of style, just like Sambas. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Liberty View Golf Club, which if you'll remember is the Super, super expensive golf club mm-hmm. that uh, Paul Fireman built. This is a project that he I love the name. Took on I'll say that. with his son. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know where it is? Can you guess based on the oh, name? Texas? No, Liberty View, Jersey City. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> That's I, yeah. The freest place in it's America, bu- <laughs> Jersey. City. Well, it's built on a on top of a toxic. Super fun site, but it <laughs> like you reach in it, to get uh, your ball out of the hole, and it's like orange glowing well, toxic waste. That's part of why it was so expensive to build. But the real estate itself overlooks Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty, so it's like this incredibly. Oh yeah, I am an idiot. Picture Liberty View, right? Yeah. Right. Um, it was two hundred and fifty million dollars to 
build this golf course. And today, the membership dues, do you want to guess the membership dues? Well, I do know that Mar-a-Lago, right, was, was uh, uh, and I don't actually know, does Mar-a-Lago have a golf course? I don't think they do. But the membership fees were raised to $500,000. This place- Yeah, so this is five. This is 500000 Oh, market value, I guess. That's the price of doing business. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's <clears> been <throat> raised over time, but it's uh, approximately $500,000 today. Members include- Rudy Giuliani, oh. <laughs> Robert Robert Kraft, Mark Wahlberg, and <laughs> Justin Timberlake. And of all of those people, I feel like I have to throw the most shade at Justin Timberlake. Yeah. Shame on you, Justin Timberlake. You lie down you with know, dogs, you wake the- up with fleas, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Not that I have any deep affection for Justin Timberlake, but my, you know, like you have like vague uh, associations with pop culture figures. And I guess I've had like more benign feelings about him than some other people. I don't know why. Um, Yeah. He seems like he has a sense of humor. He just exists. And he's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. He he can dance. I mean, I don't like his music. I've never really liked anything that he's actually done, but I don't hate him, you know? Um, But. Now that I know that he's part of this golf club, I'm I'm having second thoughts. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about this home that he built. Woodland Manor. The the house is in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is a little bit outside of Boston. It's your classic uh subdivision area. Well, when he he built this home within 80 feet of the country club property. The country club is actually called the country club. It's an incredibly exclusive country club <laughs> that <laughs> um, he wanted to build this house near. <laughs> and so <laughs> there's, there's a lot of like articles about him building this house out there. But, but one headline that I thought was good was country club golfers dismayed over Reebok executives mansion. So it it just strikes me that like you have to be like truly ostentatious to dismay country club golf. <laughs> <laughs> if your house is too uh it's not tasteful by their standards, you have done something yeah. truly abhorrent. And so, you know, people came at him and were like, "What's up? What can you explain yourself?" <laughs> And he's, he's, he's quoted in the, he's quoted in the article. He says, quote, I'm building a large, elegant house. It's it's not a castle. It's not there for ego purposes. I'm generally not of that nature. It's there for normal purposes. the, The final, the final thing he says. I keep a low profile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So this house diluted is, is so so a few years later he puts the house on the market for 90 million dollars. <laughs> oh, okay. Man. And he's been having trouble selling it. He dropped the he, he's dropped the price a couple of times and right now it's still on the market. It looks like it's on the market for 38 million. Oh. But I I thought um I thought that it might be fun for you to go watch this video that Coldwell Banker has put out, his real estate agents, mm-hmm. <laughs> in an effort to try to drum up some interest in the home. And it's a two-minute video. I thought you could go watch it, and then we could come back and talk about it together. Okay. 
<laughs> okay, so can, can we talk a little bit about um, what we saw? We'll obviously link to the video in the show description, <clears throat> but uh, can we describe? Yeah. For okay. the listeners. So what, you start with some on? establishing shots of the surrounding area, right? And so, you know, there's a city skyline. Uh, there's some uh, water. Uh, there's some, even some trees, uh, you know, so it's sort of showing you what the surrounding geography looks like. And then it cuts to a very zoomed in <laughs> close up of a sit go sign <laughs> on a gas station <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, which is really out of place. I, like, I, I like mean, what is yeah. the message there, right? Like there's nothing else. Close to gas. Close, close to, to gas. gas. <laughs> <laughs> like nothing else relates to that. Like no, there's nothing else like it in the two minute video. Yeah, it's like it's true. It, hey, it made the final cut. The do you like to get high? <laughs> do you like to get uh, snacks in the middle of the night? Uh, you're near a sicko. So, um, so okay. So then we basically enter the yes. estate, right? There's yeah, lots of it's like very ugly establishing shots of a long driveway and. Uh, close-up shots of like daffodils and the the landscaping and things of that nature, and then we uh, eventually arrive on the structure itself, which is you can well, describe. Well, I it. mean, there's the, it's really nondescript. It's actually it's actually a lot like this guy's life, right? It, it's it's uh, the most generic rich person house that you could imagine. It looks like it just looks like a swollen McMansion. It's just a big box. Uh, yeah. It's a big cube. cube. Yeah. Um, nothing, nothing interesting yeah. about the architecture, nothing going on there. Uh, inside there's a bunch of, bunch of marble. Uh, they, they linger on his Picasso, uh, which is annoying. There's only one interesting thing, which is the music, which is insane. The music is like insanely dramatic. It's like at the end of the most intense action movie and the hero is standing on top of a volcano. A hundred percent. What I was thinking, it's like, it's, it's like Braveheart carrying his wife's body. I don't even think that this was part of the movie, but like, yeah. it's like, uh, you know, and laying her body upon a pyre, right? Like, like, like yeah. it's right. the culmination yeah. of some it's, hero's life. Uh, that's very sad. I, I don't know. It's hard to describe all I can say completely inappropriate for a real estate ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like way, way crazy. <laughs> but so then the, 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 the video is two minutes long and the first, uh, 90 seconds it's all exterior and by the time we get to the structure itself it's these like swooping drone they're shots all, yeah they're all drone shots and let me just say too like the cinematography and everything it's a, it's actually pretty shitty it's a pretty shitty little video <laughs> with this like i think that they got carried away with drones i think they're like oh this is a new yeah. cool thing that we can do yeah, they got carried away with the drones. It 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 doesn't even look that good. But the the thing that I think is interesting is that you only see the inside of the house for like 15 or 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of the outside. No bedrooms. Yeah, it's just like the here's the living room, no kitchen, no bedrooms, no bathrooms. It's this giant foyer space with this winding staircase and a Picasso. Yeah. And that's it. And I think do we zoom back outside? <laughs> yeah. Back outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's 
just the weirdest yeah. shit. No wonder you haven't sold your fucking house, man. You got to get a better production team. <laughs> I just, I want to be, I want to be in the meeting for why they decided to keep the sit go shut in so bad. Like, what is the rationale? Why? I want to hear the rationale for every single shot in that thing. <laughs> It needs to be explained. It's, it's not, these are not good decisions. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, man. So I don't have anything else. I like kind of making fun of Paul Fireman. I don't know that he's a super interesting person to think about in terms of the larger themes of the show. I think if we're, if we're busting out our scale, our uh, Koch Brothers asset liquidation scale, I'm going to say like, Five, and he would be a four if he just wasn't so boring. <laughs> I think, you know, like it's, I'm giving him a five just because he's such a cartoon. You know, that sounds about right to me. Uh, I think we should not ignore the sweatshop factor. Uh, he might not have been, he yeah. might have been uninvolved in that for a long time, but that's still where his money came from. Uh, so he, you yeah. know, uh, uh, so he has, uh, evil in his past, even if he is just spending his current life surfing from country club to country club. Uh, Oh, I didn't even talk about the private equity. Oh thing. yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, yeah. And just the fact that he has a private equity company is bad. So yeah, I think five, I think if it, I think those two things take him up for a five, I think just being a super lame billionaire, like that's like a three for me. Um, but, but the sweatshops yeah. and the, the fact that he's involved in private equity, that, that definitely gives him a couple points. So yeah, five, five sounds good. I'm with you. All right, so uh, we have to pick our billionaires for next episode, like we always do. Do you have the wheel up and ready to spin? I do. I have our messed up list, uh, and I'm about to run the random generator right now. The first one we got is... John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R, John Doerr, Doerr. D-O-E-R-R? Uh-huh, of Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. He's a venture capital funding director. Oh. Uh, okay. So that's that's one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no one is <laughs> leaping into the ring to take that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me spin let me spin it again. Uh here's number two. All right. Well, this one is probably gonna go to you. We got Thomas Tull, legendary pictures chairman, CEO, film production. Uh, he sold a film production studio for three and a half billion dollars in January 2016. So I think he might be a new billionaire uh, from selling. I do kind of. Can I can I take him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take John. You could do something with venture capital, right? 
<laughs> yeah, 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 I'll figure it out. Sorry, you could. I'll take the next dud. You know, yeah. but you never know. Like well, the thing about doing this that people don't understand. It's like every episode. It's sort of like we get this dossier. It's like Mission Impossible. Like, should you choose to accept this mission, you open it up and you don't know who the fuck this person is. There's just like crazy. It can always be. You, there's just curveballs. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Which you can never predict. I agree. So um, it's fun. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode. It means a lot that you hang out here and listen to the bitter end. Um, continue to spread the word about the podcast. If you can like and subscribe or tell others to like and subscribe, that would be great. Um, but even just listening is also great. Chad, yeah. do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that, I think that was pretty good. Uh, I think you did it. Okay.